This is Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today we're speaking with poet Jennifer Kwan Dobbs. Jennifer is the author of two books of poetry, Paper Pavilion and Interrogation Room, as well as the chapbooks Notes from a Missing Person and Necro Citizens. An associate professor of creative writing and director of race and ethnic studies at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, she recently has published work in Agni, Indiana Review, Jubilat, and Poetry International. We begin with an exploration of Jennifer's obsession with food, and more particularly with the ingredients and flavors of Korea, a country that as a transnational adoptee, she has only started to become better acquainted with. Let's jump into the conversation as we delve a little bit deeper into what it means to bring flavors back from a country and try to integrate them into your own life and into your own kitchen. You know, I really love cooking Korean food, and it might not sound weird at all, but the thing that I'm most attracted to actually is making banchan, which requires working oftentimes with dried vegetables. And so when I travel to Korea, I always bring back in my suitcase all kinds of dried vegetables. Sometimes I don't even know how to cook them or what to do with them. And as part of teaching myself Korean, something that I've done over the years is that I go online and I read recipes. And I'm sort of a self-taught atuma, like middle-aged Korean woman, if that makes any sense, who is just really obsessed with, you know, different ways of making uh, food that I didn't grow up with, but that I just really adore the smells and the textures and even sometimes the way my hands feel working the ingredients. Mm-hmm. So why, why are these things unfamiliar to you? Did you not grow up with them in your family or are you geographically removed? Are you culturally removed from these things which you now are trying to reconnect to? Right. I mean, you know, one makes back given my name, Jennifer Kwan Dobbs with you know, the middle name of Kwan, that this would not necessarily be like a strange or unusual obsession. But in my own particular case, as someone who grew up in Oklahoma, after being sent overseas for intercountry adoption, being, you know, like cut off from culture, from language, from history, you know, growing up with Korean food was not a part of my experience, especially living in rural Oklahoma. So, you know, learning how to eat the food, be around the food, knowing what to do with the food, all of that is really a, a kind of way of being in my my body, a way of understanding my senses that is completely unnatural to me. And living here in Minnesota and reconnecting with my Korean family, if you can believe it, my um, birth family, I have a brother who grew up here in Minnesota. He has three sons who are my three nephews. And they're growing up in rural Minnesota so that whenever they come over to my house and they see something soaking in these big tubs in my kitchen, they're like, ew, what's that, Como? And I'm like, oh, it's tasty. And they're like, oh, my God. And they, like, sniff it and run away. And I think to myself, yeah, you know, like, that's that's probably – you know, the experience that I would have had if someone would have shown me that this is the food 
that nourished our ancestors and made our lives possible if I were like six or eight years old too. Yeah, it's interesting how food can play that role, that way of reconnecting to culture or reaffirming perhaps an identity that we're, we're struggling to claim. I, I think for, for me, you know, I have like an opposite problem. My own name betrays none of my Chinese ancestry. And mm. yet I grew up in a house in which we did cook a lot of Chinese food and a childhood which was split between different countries and mm-hmm. immersed in other languages. And and so even at points in my life when I've forgotten Mandarin, the thing that <laughs> tethered me to the culture in many ways was the food. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, and as an adult, regaining the language became something very concerted, much like you you speak of like the effort to reclaim Korean is um, or to claim Korean is an effort to connect again, mm-hmm. to know something mm-hmm. in the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love I, this this image, too, of you, you bringing back suitcases full of dried <laughs> ingredients, many of which you're not quite certain how to prepare, but know somehow that these things are necessary, or at least an adventure awaiting. Yeah, I think it's a way of just trying to you know, acquaint myself with, you know, the smells, the textures, what have been so important to ancestors that have made my own body possible. You know, it's not this nostalgic thing, actually. It's um, it's really a special kind of knowledge that mm-hmm. you really need to know well. So how did you begin? I mean, like, faced with this this idea of, like, wanting to reacquaint yourself or discover you know, these foods, these tastes, these ingredients that, that formed, um, and as you say, nourished sort of your, your ancestors and the ones that have been before you, how do you begin? Was there a particular book or a particular ingredient that first intrigued you that, you know, you kind of felt, I need to begin by figuring this thing out first? Right. I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma during um, the 80s. I mean, you and I are of the same generation. And I think we remember that time period, right? When computers were not readily available, they were something that, you know, maybe we encountered later, like when we were maybe in sixth grade, perhaps. But like, I remember when, you know, cable TV wasn't that exciting. I think the only Asian faces I really saw, and they weren't really faces, were on the TV show MASH, for example. (laughs) So, it wasn't until I was in college when I, you know, going to a restaurant in Oklahoma City, first encountered Korean food. It's very confusing to me, actually. But I, I'd gone to the restaurant just to see what what it was like. And I remember not really liking it, actually, Neil. Like, I I thought it was way too spicy. It was, I was really overwhelmed by it. But when I lived out in Los Angeles, in K-Town, when I was part of the USC PhD in Large and Creative Writing Program, that um, I began to force myself to go to all these restaurants. And I would sometimes just sit in the restaurant by myself and not know what to do or what to order. It was something about just being in that space that was about being inside this body and being inside a restaurant 
where, you know, you could order something to drink and you could just sit and you could feel you know, like you can have your body and nobody would really talk to you or bother you. And it felt like that was a way to be inside my skin. And ever since then, I think eating food has been really important to, I, I would say, decolonizing myself, if that makes sense. So that food has become an important means of also like reconnecting following when I reunited with my Korean family in 2011. You know, sometimes they're not always able to talk to each other given language barriers, but what we can always do is we can eat together. Mm. And so I, I think, you know, like going and being inside these restaurants back in 2001 was really important in order to prepare myself, you know, to be able to build a relationship with the family. When you went to these restaurants, I, and as soon, I, I can imagine some of these restaurants having lived in the same neighborhood when I was mm -hmm. at USC, the, um, did, did you feel any trepidation or anxiety about stepping in and not necessarily knowing what to order? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, oh, geez, I don't know if you remember this particular little shopping center, but over on, I think it was Vermont and um, Vermont and Normandy, kind of over in that area, mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a little restaurant that I used to always go inside of, and it was because the ajumas there, they were very friendly. Mm -hmm. And they would always speak Korean to me, and I'd no clue what they were saying, but I would you know, just smile, and they were always very nice, and they'd always bring me something hot to drink. And um, it wasn't until later when I learned Korean, and I went back after having graduated from USC, that I realized that this was a bibimbap restaurant. That mm -hmm. It was called Zansu Bibimbap. And you know, they would always bring me like a, just a bowl of something. They were always very kind. And I think that just being in that space, even though I was really nervous and worried, just being in that space, being recognized, being cared for, being seen as someone who's a member of the community, that was a feeling that I'd never had before. So being in K-Town was absolutely exciting for me. And it was really the food that I think helped, you know, helped me feel like what it's like to be a Korean woman. Yeah, I, I think that point, too, about being seen, being, you know, feeling a part of the community, being welcomed in. I, mm -hmm. I know for me, as someone who's mixed race, it's, it's a lot harder for me to have those encounters. But I do recall... You know, the rare occasions I've stepped into a Taiwanese restaurant and someone has greeted me without any irony in Chinese and welcomed me mm -hmm. in Mandarin and just without a skipping a beat accepted the fact that I could speak and, and communicate. And mm -hmm. it was just a really strange and wonderful moment to be seen like that. It is really kind of a wonderful thing to have happen. Has pursuing this particular obsession with coming to know the food and the ingredients better opened other doors into other aspects of the culture. You know, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier in 2011 was when I reunited with my Korean family and it was quite incredible to learn that I had a younger brother who had grown up in Minnesota, although I had grown up in Oklahoma and been sent to a separate family. We didn't grow up together whatsoever. We didn't know each other existed and um, I think that having learned so much more about 
Korean culture through, you know, traveling back and forth, learning Korean language for translation, building relationships in Korean, um, developing a facility in Korean to where I am mobile when I go to Korea. All of that cultural capital building, as it were, focused upon myself as an individual, learning it on my own without necessarily the aid of family, actually helped support when I did reunite, uh, family reunion. In this case, I'm thinking about like with my brother, going to all these different K-towns whenever I'm traveling and picking up things for my brother and also for myself here at home and to share with my nephews. Like that has been just kind of, you know, like an obsession of mine for how to be like a good Como. Becoming a good Como has become a very important obsession of mine, actually, Neil. (laughs) And, And how are you working to fulfill that? I mean, it sounds like there's already things that you're doing in that pursuit. Guomo means um, paternal aunt. Mm -hmm. And I realize that the word adoptee is such a loaded term. But, you know, when I think about what's underneath that term, in essence, I'm a mixed ethnic person. Mm -hmm. And that I was raised in a white family by whites. I was taught to think of myself as a white person. I was surrounded by whites. So that decolonizing, resisting that whiteness has meant learning more about myself as a Korean person and resisting that whiteness while at the same time recognizing that that whiteness was my childhood. And so figuring out how to be a person who has all of those cultures has also meant recognizing that I don't have to be the kind of Como um, paternal aunt who would be a traditional Como. I don't have to follow these sort of essentialist notions of who a Como is or what a Como does. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are things, you know, that I do that I think are really important to do. Like, for example, when I'm with my nephews, cooking is really important as a way to show love. I um, like to make for them bulgogi and samgapsal, which is um, pork belly, fried pork belly. But even, you know, little things like, you know, taking them shopping and giving them back rubs, you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how much is not even, it's like, it goes beyond linguistics. It goes beyond, you know, beyond language, beyond formal tradition and just sort of, it is bodily in some ways, that interaction with each other. I'm wondering too, like in what ways has this pursuit and this interest in decolonizing and also reacquainting or acquainting yourself with the food and the language and the family and the the community and the culture of Korea has impacted your own views and your own relationship to Oklahoma Mm. and the the culture and the language and the people there. Mm, Right. You know, I'm stunned by how violent Oklahoma is, you know, now that I've got like a more distant view of it. And that isn't to say that Korea is somehow less violent because it's not. It's it's a place of incredible pain and sorrow. But I'm stunned by like how much violence is part of everyday experience of being in Oklahoma. And I'm thinking in particular about U.S. militarism. This past um, summer when I 
visited Oklahoma, I went all the way down the I-35, which is one long, boring drive, Neil. It's so flat. It's just one long, straight drive from a blue state straight into like a hemorrhaging red state. And I was just so stunned by how present militarism is. Everything from bumper stickers on the back of people's cars to ways in which U.S. militarism um, appears on billboards in everyday conversation, even about the troops, you know, fundraisers, you'll see little signs in people's um, stores about like raising funds for our troops. It's just really, really stunning to me. And I, I think when I lived there, I didn't see all of that necessarily, but um, you know, like how this militarism also feeds into ways in which military is obviously occupying all over the world, for example, in Korea. So it, just the violence of those intimacies tied to militarism, which I know make up the experience that I have as a person who is adopted, it's, it, it just kind of caught my breath this past summer. I think a lot about how this militarism in Oklahoma where I grew up, it's so banal. It's it's so everyday. It's represented, you know, in the ways in which people relate to each other. I'm thinking about, for example, how a cousin had just returned from uh, serving in the army out in Korea. And when I heard that he had been there, I began asking him questions about so, you know, like, which base were you at? And he had mentioned he had been at, um, I think it was Camp Casey. And, you know, I've been to Camp Casey. I've been to the camp town around Camp Casey. I know about the history related to, it's called a Kiziton, the, the camp towns that were zoned specifically for um, U.S. soldiers that contained bars and in particular brothels and Korean nationals were not allowed in there. Those spaces were specifically zoned for us soldiers. And so there was just this uncomfortable moment of looking at my, my cousin who's white, who's, I think he is 24 years old, 22 years old and just feeling so terrified of what he may have you know, been exposed to, what he may have participated in. And then at the same time, knowing that this is my cousin, who I haven't seen since he was very, very small. Has this led you to write about these type of tensions, like the the anxiety or, or, or the the complication that comes between relationships, like within a family, especially when they cross over... Um, racial boundaries, they cross over cultural boundaries. You know, thinking about your cousin, thinking about other members of the community that you grow up in and how their relationship to a country of origin or to a culture or to people who look like you is different than how it has been for you. Well, I think, Neil, this is where, you know, race has really become... Um, an important topic for me and something that I find myself returning to again and again in my own writing. 
and thinking about race in these ways that are tied to militarism, tied to gender and kinship. You know, even when I'm trying not to think about it, I found myself constantly thinking about it. And it's become the lens through which I see the world. And um, again, I was, uh, as a young person, raised in a way that where, where I was taught to be so colorblind. So this was not a way in which I think that I necessarily had always understood the way I had um, developed language, as it were. It, it's a strange thing to explain whereby, you know, you are taught to see yourself as white. There's this bizarre disconnect between, you know, looking in the mirror, seeing your brown face, but then being told over and over again that somehow you're white. It's such a weird feeling. And, you know, it, that disconnect is, you know, not something that's unique to me, but I think is a common experience among um, Korean adoptees or adoptees of color, particularly in my generation. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself being obsessed with race. You know, like, for example, I have um, a three and a half year old boy named Thomas. He's mixed race. And I'm I'm raising him to see race. We have always talked about race. Ever since he was a little baby, I would talk to him about race. <laughs> and so that he's never in a place where talking about race is uncomfortable where it's normal to talk about those things. I realize we're having a really intense conversation. It is a really intense conversation. I think like adoption brings in a particular complexity because of that disconnect, the, the sense that it is obvious that I do not look like the rest of my siblings, and yet no one talks about that fact. Everyone treats me as if I look exactly the same, and yet it's clear that I don't look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I remember one particular documentary where it was a, an African American woman who had grown up in a white family and her mother's insistence that her hair should be cut and treated as, as it were just regular white people hair mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. sort of like her frustration for years, her frustration of trying to care for her own hair and also having been lied to about the fact that she was of mixed race identity it wasn't until she went into a salon and someone looked at her and said, honey, you got black hair. <laughs> and just like, we know how to do this. And like, and that was just that moment of like realizing that, that she had been misled and that sort of like that rupture between sort of this idea that had been sold to her. I think sometimes this is done consciously and purposefully. And I think other times it's just an unconscious thing that, that well-intentioned, parents just don't recognize the damage that's done by not addressing this the issues of race and of difference. I really appreciate the things you're saying because so many adoptive persons, especially again of my generation, we have talked a lot about how hard it was, especially as females, to, you know, like find ways where you know, like caring for our hair or finding makeup or learning how to put makeup on, like all of that was just so difficult to navigate. But, you know, there has always been a need for personal products, specifically for women of color, has always been the case. And when I think about in particular, you know, growing up as a transracial adoptee, I mean, you know, having long black hair that was coarse and, the lie is always that 
East Asian women have these, will have hair that's um, perfectly straight. That's not the case. And so, you know, perms were all the rage during the 80s. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to have the spiral perm. And it took like three different home perms to get my hair to curl. But when it finally curled, it was just this mess. It was so terrifying. Um, in sixth grade, I, I just had this poodle puff for like a good year and a half. That's how long it took for the thing to grow out. It was horrible. And, um, you know, again, like, what are ways in which just the lack of community, the lack of being around people who share your same body, like who can help give you that knowledge for how to care for your hair, care for your skin and all of those things, who know like your medical history, who can help you understand why, for example, you know, in my case growing up, I was allergic to milk and why like all the dairy products were bad for me, you know, being around that kind of knowledge about your body, it's not a privilege, it's a right. Mm. It really is important for your well-being. And it it ought to be a right, I say. And you know, I, I want to think about, you know, good intentions, but beyond good intentions, you know, what are ways in which that kind of knowledge is blocked from persons of you know of a diverse kinship who are adopted what are ways in which that knowledge is viewed as dangerous that somehow mm. it's going to harm the adoptive family if mm-hmm. you know there's too much information that's shared so that legal blockages need to be made in order to protect the adoptive um, family i mean that's just really problematic i think and um you know beyond individuals and their good intentions i think more about ways in which the knowledge I'm describing is prohibited. No, that, that is definitely true. That's a very real problem of the fear that somehow that knowledge becomes dangerous, that somehow it jeopardizes the relationship. Mm-hmm. It weakens the adoptive family's hold on the child. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's largely about trust. It's largely about, like, trusting children individuals to be able to to work with that knowledge but i i think too you know there is something about it being a right about it being necessary i don't think i've had as extreme experiences on on my own my hair doesn't have this natural wave nor did i go through a phase although my mother will probably correct me I think there was a point where my hair, I do not recall if it was naturally curly or they put a perm in it, but there was one point, there is a picture with me with curly hair, but for, for whatever reason, it's the, the coarse hair thing I remember distinctly and continue to struggle with that sense of like, I live now in, in Portland, Oregon, which is a, you know, a predominantly white space. And mm-hmm. I did not realize how much frustration and anxiety I would experience after I moved here over the simple matter of finding some place that could cut my hair. That's right. And it just produced a lot of frustration of having <laughs> so many bad haircuts before I finally found um, a salon that was run by two half Vietnamese sisters that know how to cut Asian hair. And it just made all the difference. That That's sense of joy, <laughs> like you come home and you're like, I know mm-hmm. that these two women know how to cut my hair. It's, it's strange mm-hmm. how much joy mm-hmm. that is that, to say, like, that's one less thing to worry about. 
and one thing I don't have to explain. It's interesting to me, too, that we talk about this as not needing to explain, not needing <laughs> to argue our place or our, our position or our um, membership within a community. And then I think about, like, the MFA workshop. And I think about, you know, creative writing spaces, which sometimes can be predominantly white, often are predominantly white. And so that difference that happens when you find yourself in a writing space, a writing community, where you do not need to actually explain yourself or your your experiences or your culture or your appearance and the way that you've navigated through the world, through your life, that it's mm-hmm. not challenged, but simply accepted that, yes, you could have those experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Or that your understanding of the poem is um, coming from a positionality that doesn't have to be everyone else's positionality. It doesn't have to be universal and that it is just as powerful, right, as maybe the ways that your peers are understanding, for example, what a lyric poem is or what it can do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that your work is read as poetry, that the art is seen rather than being treated as memoir all the time or as anthropology, which I think is the worst feeling. They serve tree as a kind of artifact rather than as an artist. That's the worst. You're listening to The Lit Fantastic. To find out more about our show and our previous guests, check out our website, www.thelitfantastic.com. In your own practice as an educator, how, how have you found, what were you doing in the classroom and in your, in your relationship with the students that you work with to try to address some of these issues? Hmm. So I teach at St. Olaf College, and I've been teaching here since 2008. And I also teach outside of the college. For example, I just recently finished up the Loft and Mentor series where I was a teaching artist. And I worked with a cohort of four poets who Chris Abani and I were paired up to work with in particular. And um, he and I had selected these four poets as part of the overall Loft Mentor series program. It's um, a competitive program for emerging writers who reside in Minnesota and hundreds of applications come in every year. And so I think in particular about working with that program and over the course of eight sessions, you know, talking with um, these very accomplished writers who are coming from all kinds of different uh, previous writing experiences. Some had MFAs, some had never, you know, gone to a graduate program or even in their undergraduate had taken a creative writing workshop. They were all amazing in terms of their talent. And I thought what was really amazing too, was that the entire program was made up of women and a good percentage of them were women of color. And so in working with these poets, something that I thought was really necessary was to be able to, make space for each of the writers to talk about their process. But in order to make space for talking about process, to you know, share with the students a variety of writers in advance, in order to get them to think about how ways in which diversity 
shapes different kinds of processes because as artists, process is first and foremost what we are obsessed with. Sometimes the, we never feel like we've gotten the poem quite right, but it's the process that we're always exploring, it seems to me. And so we read, uh, you know, a lot of different poets together. And, you know, I think for the community workshop, it kind of surprised them that we began with reading so much. But I thought that was absolutely necessary. So we read, for example, Olio. We read um, um, some of Paisley Rectal's work. We took a look at um, even poetry and translation um, in order to get the students to think a lot about different ways of approaching and knowing the poem so that when they were then able to talk about their own processes, we had um, ways in which we could say, well, you know, look at how this poet is experimenting with, you know, type of futurist uh, impulse that's also engaging, you know, race in these very powerful ways. You know, we can take a look at that, you know, for example, with um, ways that Justin Philip Reed's doing it. And so like that kind of context enabled us to have touchstones that could help push the conversation forward. I think reading, this is a long-winded answer, I'm sorry, but I think it's like reading writers of color is always the first go-to. It makes such a huge difference before jumping into the individual poet's work. Because if you're looking at the poet's work in a vacuum, it's really hard to take a look at the process as being engaged with the larger questions of poetry. Yeah, that's a wonderful answer. I, I don't mind it being long-winded. I think that... <laughs> Thanks, Neil. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think it's necessary to to provide that context to explore the larger conversation that's happening, as well as to think about where we're writing into and where we're writing from. I love the idea of like bringing in sort of that mixture of contemporary poetry from different writers of color, but also including work in translation to kind of expand even further, to take us out of sort of an Anglo-centric look at how we might imagine poetry to work. Mm -hmm. I've been fascinated in thinking about non-Western poetics, thinking about different strategies and ways of thinking about what is poetry, how does one write poetry, what is aesthetically and linguistically and semantically beautiful in language mm-hmm. um, when it doesn't come out of a Greek or a Roman tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's interesting because so often, I, I remember all the classes I've taken for MFA or for PhD, almost every single one begins with the unspoken assumption that poetics is rooted in the Western tradition. And that there is right. no other discussion to be had. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just a blind spot. I, don't, I think people do not think about the existence of other ways of talking about poetry. That's right. I mean, like, why aren't we beginning, for example, with um, classical Chinese poetry, like going to the Shiching, for example, or why aren't we going to, well, even like, you know, I'm talking about. Korean culture, like, why don't we go to Korean poetry? Or like mm-hmm. all these other poetry, and I hate using that word other. Um, let me just completely remove that. <laughs> you know, why don't we go to the world's poetries, for instance? So it's not about the poetry or a poetry, but poetries in the plural. And ways in which those poetries are vigorous and important to our current moment. 
you know what why don't we do that and uh, mm-hmm. yeah go ahead uh, i was going to say answer sort of the complex relationship that these poetries have had with each other um, yes. because i think often we think of them as siloed but they're not uh, I remember, you know, I had this conversation with a Chinese poet that I work with sometimes on translation projects, and we were translating a particular contemporary Chinese poet, Zhang Di, and mm-hmm. was struck. You know, I noticed her. It was like this line. This comes from Roque, or this is this is a Rambo line. You know, it was like, you know, how how often like this particular poet was referencing other poets that he had encountered through translation, and then it led to another discussion about some of the moves within contemporary Chinese poetry as being rooted in a resistance to classical poetry. And where did they turn to for models for resistance? Modernist, you know, American and English poetry, which in turn had been inspired by classical Tang Dynasty poetry, which in fact, despite its obscurement in in English, had been, so in English translation, it had appeared to be a liberation from form when in mm-hmm. fact in the original Chinese was rigidly formulaic and form driven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so there's this know, weird absolutely. circle of misunderstanding <laughs> that, that fed two great poetries. And I was like thinking, this is, it's fascinating, that whole relationship between these and no one talks about it. No one talks about the, they talk about one direction, but they don't talk about the opposite direction, you know, how that flows around. Nor do we talk about the ways in which there is a voracious appetite in non-European, non-American, non-Anglophone communities of writers to study and to be informed by what's happening outside of their community and their culture. And even if it is filtered and even modified or transformed through translation, there is a dialogue that's happening. And even as we encounter those new work and old work that's been informed by that interaction, there is usually a silence about the ways in which they've been feeding that feedback loop has looped around and around and around again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Neil. And I'm thinking, too, about multilingual poetries. Increasingly, my work has incorporated English and Korean. And I don't feel the need always to translate anymore, I think, in the way that I might have in the past or to even explain. And I think that there's a real um, beauty in hearing all the languages together, the ways in which the languages are jostling against each other and creating something else that if you remove the need to explain, you remove the, you know, the need to even translate and give access, that there are other ways in which, you know, your ear and your sense of language just shift when you're hearing all those languages together in a single poem. And, you know, when you think about, too, the ways in which, you know, outside of this big expanse of North America, you know, what are ways in which multilingualism is a part of every, a person's everyday experience? You know, what are ways in which you constantly hear multiple languages or you've grown up with multiple languages to where you have to switch back and forth. Mm -hmm. So switching back and forth in a poem, it actually captures the imagination of a person where all of those languages are colliding all the time. So, you know, even in, you know, like how I currently live as a as a person who's reunited with her Korean family, hears Korean on a regular basis, also 
hears German constantly because of my husband, who is a German national, and we're raising our son Thomas to hear German and English and sometimes Korean pepper done. I mean, you know, <laughs> my everyday experience is just a bunch of languages that are constantly you know, jostling with each other in these really important ways. And all that energy is, some might think of it as being um, fragmentary or pulling apart, but it's actually in all of those languages that um, home is being made, quite literally. So I can also be the case for a lyric, right? No, I, I think that's definitely true. I, I think of my my parents are an excellent example. My My mother grew up speaking... Mandarin, Cantonese, Taiwanese, Hakka, and English. And my father mm -hmm. grew up speaking English, but then was a missionary in New Zealand and learned Maori, Samoan, Tongan, and Hawaiian. And mm -hmm. so I grew up in this house where I heard all sorts of languages. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of like how growing up in spaces where many languages are spoken, like you said, did not lead to fragmentation and confusion as much as it led me eventually, once I relearned Mandarin, to become aware of how much that multilingual, the, the poly, polyphonic um, nature of those type of spaces changes our own relationship with the idea of communication. That That's right. instead of being rooted, I think often when we're monolingual, we conflate the idea or the concept with the label that we use to communicate it. And we beca it becomes impossible to see them as being separate or that the label itself may be problematic or inexact to describing a particular experience or a particular concept or idea. But when you begin to learn many languages, you start to realize how imperfect any language is at describing yes. what you're trying to experience, what you're trying to describe of the human experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, you also realize how how fragile language is and that that also contributes to how beautiful it is. You know, in thinking more and more about all the different languages that are making up my experience currently and bringing those to the poem and not feeling like mastery is what is absolutely important. I think that, um, you know, maybe in my earlier work, you know, an obsession with mastering a certain kind of form or a certain kind of idiom that I felt like was important to uh, gaining authority in a poem was first and foremost in my mind. You know, now as a older poet, I'm not that old, but you know, like <laughs> poet who's had you know more work come out. You know, this multilingualism, ways in which language is more fragile, and you know, there are these moments where language is sort of um, delicate. You know, like where you can make mistakes and that's actually a moment of beauty. Like I've begun to think more in that direction so that this multilingualism can become its own kind of presence. I worry that sometimes there's always this focus on translation so that it's about access, mm -hmm. you know, where something is rendered as completely monolingual and somehow that makes you know, the experience more accessible what are ways in which, you know, being outside, being disoriented actually is the point of access, actually is the point of the beauty, you know, this rearrangement of the senses. I mean, isn't that another way of naming transcendence? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. That, I mean, 
we call something ineffable because we can't describe it. We can't name it entirely. And I think, you know, we try. We try in our writing to do it, but we only gesture towards it. I think about my own experiences in translation and, and the experiences of others that I've talked to. Um, mm-hmm. That realization of how much you can't carry over because mm-hmm. the actual traits and characteristics of one language are so drastically different from another language, that the new language, which is often English, is incapable of actually capturing the range of nuance you need. Or that one language is so deeply dependent on allusion and literary and cultural context, you know, that there is such a history of usage that Mm -hmm. when you evoke one phrase that it's going to suggest a particular set of literary contexts or historical contexts, which make that phrase a shorthand, which you cannot use in English. Yeah. And I would also add to that too, Neil, like, you know, each language is its own way of breathing, right? Yeah. It's its own way of, you know, like drawing in breath and, you know, like the way your body moves, your mouth moves quite literally around, you know, the vowels and so forth. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of rhythm in its most elemental sense. And there are just times when the way in which we breathe in English, it just, it doesn't release the kind of energies that are needed, like in a, in Korean for me, when I'm writing or in German, when, you know, my husband's speaking to me and just, you know, when I think about how in a multilingual poem, there is that code switching, the summoning of different ways of breathing in the work. And it's actually hearing that code switching, you know, it's those pauses that it's that music that if you stop and you try to translate it or you try to footnote it, you you destroy it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think you're right about nuance, subtext, all of those things, but, you know, just going back to the body for a minute, which seems to be our big theme that we've, that that we keep Mm -hmm. ricocheting around, but going back to the body ways in which the language summons your body to do things that are very intimate and um, presence-making strike me as being, you know, a case for why why this translation, maybe it doesn't have to be the go-to for a poem. Maybe the untranslated is sometimes what's so necessary. I, I think that's, that is really true, too, that, yeah, that untranslated portion, that, that sense of what we can't quite articulate is powerful as well, or that it doesn't need to be rendered in another language. That in some ways, I think you're kind of going this direction too, that each language brings with it a set of tools, a set of capacities, a set of particular <laughs> Liam Neeson, uh, well, kind of, uh, yeah, Liam Neeson style, a particular set of skills to get things done. That I feel like that is also true, that I I feel like in some things I would lean on Mandarin as like, if I want to give out addresses to someone, I will use (laughs) Mandarin because it is the most efficient and compact way to describe how to get to a location because each address is a map from the largest to the smallest turn. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's like this beautiful thing. It's like, why is this language so beautiful and efficient? 
I think as a programmer, I think about that too. It's like, it is incredibly <laughs> efficient in terms of delivering this type of information. Or why is it that, you know, <laughs> there's such this wealth of sound available because of it being a character language, a language of idio. To say it's ideograms is not exactly right. It's not truly ideogrammic or pictographic, but it is a language that is character and you can have a lot of a lot of homophones, a lot of things that that lend themselves to creating this rich sonic texture of um, similarity and parallel that you can't quite pull off in English. Mm. And and mm. so there are things like that that I think it, it lends itself into a musical um, a way of kind of you know summoning or calling into existence things that English, because it is a a weird hybrid um, language, it is a colonial language. It is a language of occupying other languages and taking and absorbing Borg-like in its own fashion and rolling <laughs> yeah. along that, that it doesn't always acknowledge. It rarely acknowledges where it is stolen words from and incorporated into itself. But English is this fascinating, complex, imperfect, messy language that on some things has its own particular abilities because of that, mm-hmm. that we can create a whole range of effects because of, of that strange, complicated troubled history that we couldn't do in another language. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think they come with their strengths. They come with their weaknesses. And I think. With it, their histories. Right. right. But we have to, we have to have those conversations about what is really present in a language. When we set out to translate, we have to say, it's not about one being better than the other. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, nor is it really about necessarily giving access to something. But I think each attempt to translate is an attempt to say what we are actually deadly afraid of losing in the translation. Mm, yeah, I think that's a lovely way to put it, what we are afraid to lose, and that the translation helps extend the life of what has been translated, right? And um, in that sense, you're really translating energies, right? Like mm-hmm. as you're translating kind of elan vital, this kind of vitality mm-hmm. that is in the original that you want to somehow extend um, not only audience, but extend and pull into the language that is translating that that work. Mm-hmm. There's some, some kind of ineffable energy that's being pulled into um, the language of translation. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, before we wrap up, would you like to read one or two poems? Sure. All right. So this poem is from my new collection, Interrogation Room, and it's called Note Left at a U.S. Camptown Brothel for My Missing Emo. Dear Sixth Emo, grandfather's youngest daughter, no one taught you to write petal and furling red across the bed, creak cutting the mattress. No one told me your name, Chalk to sketch your body starred and open so grandmother could buy rice while the neighbors ate barley. Nobody asked where her money came from. They knew where youngest daughters disappeared too, why their mixed babies disappeared too, what math purchased seaweed for soup fed to the married eldest delivering a son 
The first time I heard the rumor of you, it was a mistake to ask your name because Umma wanted to hide you. Just as she hid the fact of me, I also hid the words I knew. Kiditan, Yangongju, Goa, Ibyanga. I hid under the bed, in the cupboard, behind clay pots. All the names for absence, feeding our family, who chewed and chewed. So this one is called Yusung's Room. We were talking earlier about Korean poetry, and um, this is a modernist poet who actually also read um, U.S. modernist poems in order to think about experimenting, um, you know, in his own work. So, yes, absolutely, there's this feedback loop between <laughs> Europe, North America, and then also um, Asian poets, and it's not just limited to Asia. You're absolutely right about this feedback loop that we never talk about. We always think of it as being unidirectional. But anyway, this poem is called Yi Sung's Room. Um, he was born Kim Hegyung in Sochon, Seoul, 1910-1933. At this table, I pose as an illiterate draftsman. Tax collectors commissioned me for an imperial museum, but I design my name as a false frame, though marked by bureaucrats as an industrious example. There on rafters of bone, I inscribe an orange, butterfly for the virtuous, wives sickened by their husband's seamen, pumped to battleship island, to motor coal cars, the messages the men carve, I want to go home, beloved, I miss you, into the timbered shafts, shingle my roof against a red sun, within its blaze I cut, lengths of air, for walls that a solitary prisoner, released from Sondamon, can dream inside. Here I no longer fear the tenure committee who prefers red lacquered bowls to story loss, or administrators who nail ordinances to my porch. Motherless, my words may be dismissed as experiments, or disappear under a courtyard lake, or divide a pillar darkness into floating rooms which monks and poets eat. The bronze latch slips and leaves blow through the gate. Now it's possible to speak in earnest of escape. Don't let disaster catch you, immobile and bereft. Failure is also a posture against, against. Thank you so much for joining us for this particular episode. It's been wonderful. Um, where can people get your new book? So, Interrogation Room was just published by White Pine Press. You can visit whitepine.org in order to pick it up there, and it's also available at your favorite independent bookseller, as well as at Amazon.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Lit Fantastic. Our guest was Jennifer Kwan Dobbs. For more information about Jennifer and her work, you can visit her website at www.jquandobbs.com. That's www.jkwondobbs.com. A special thanks to KBOO Portland for the generous use of their studios and to my tireless producer, Kat Betuigas. And, of course, a thank you to all of you for listening to this episode. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.